Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Stark. The nothing personal word of the day is Stark, as in Jason Stark. How lucky are we for the Samson sit-down tap Hall of Famer, Jason Stark, and the host of a great pod. If you don't have it, you should download it, subscribe to it. It's called Starkville, as in Jason Stark. Jason, how are you? David, I'm great, man. Good to see you, sort of. It is good to sort of see you. We've spent a lot of time talking during the pandemic about all different things. Uh, just to give our listeners some background, Jason Stark in the Hall of Fame, last, was it last year or 10 years ago? <laughs> I think it was 100 years ago, but apparently it was last year. So uh, you get to be in the Hall of Fame when you're one of the greatest writers in the history of baseball, which, which Jason Stark is. And what Jason is known for, we're going to talk about so many things here today, but what Jason is known for is thinking outside the box and loving baseball more than most people do. It's very much a, uh, I have found in my career, sort of a self-hating sport, as many sports are, where people like to complain about it. But Jason is a lover of baseball, and he and I spend hours talking about the game, the best part of the game, the worst part of the game changes. And I wanted to bring him to you, the Nothing Personal audience, A, because I wanted to introduce you to Starkville, but B, because I wanted you to hear a perspective of someone who spends his life around baseball and around not just players, but owners and management and understands the history, the present and thinks about the future. And I have not come across any other writers, and that's not hyperbole, Jason, who actually are able to do all three. There's historians, obviously. There's people who are just out of this world talking about the future and then people who analyze the present. You do all three. Well, I'm honored that you would say that, David. I, you know, like I'm just being me. I, I, I love the sport. I think constantly about the sport um, and everything that I do, everything I write, all the podcasts and TV and radio, like it's just, it's all stemming from that love. It's just a labor of love. That's my life and I am lucky to lead it. So I, I want to get right into something because I do want to hear about how you got into baseball, but I, I want to talk about the state of MLB right now, which is something that the state of sports and then the state of MLB Obviously, my old team, the Marlins, had a lot of issues, and you and I talked about the mad nauseum with the outbreak, hoping they'd be the only team. And now we're looking at the Cardinals, who are going to play six days in Chicago, potentially up to three doubleheaders. They're playing the Cubs and the White Sox, and they have not played. I think the number's going to – what is it going to be, 16 days in between games? That's correct. Yep. Um, so from your perspective, is there a competitive – integrity issue. Rob Manford's big words are competitive integrity. With the Marlins, I do believe there is, despite their hot start. What is your view of the Cardinals? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I, I actually raised this question over a month ago because you could see this coming, that there, sooner or later there was going to be an outbreak on some team. And how is it going to be handled? Obviously, the way the Marlins was handled initially has differed dramatically from how the Cardinals outbreak was handled. And so, but granted, you, you know, you have to control internal spread and an outbreak within a team so that it doesn't become a 
public health crisis, right? And baseball has done a really good job of doing that with the Cardinals specifically. But the problem is now, you know, when you when you're part of a sport, when you're part of a league, you're connecting the dots from yourself to every other team. Now, some of these teams haven't been affected, but if I'm, if I'm doing the math right, we're up to 10 teams now that have had at least one game, one series postponed because of COVID. And the White Sox actually will be the 11th when their game is officially called tonight. This is a problem for the sport and you have to address it in more than one way. But one of those ways is competitive integrity. I talked to an infectious disease expert at one point who said to me, you need when something like this happens to not just shut down one team, you really should shut down all teams. A, from the standpoint of public health, two, from the standpoint of competitive integrity. That's always the way it was gonna be handled in Korea, right? The KBO, if there was one positive case, they were gonna shut down the entire league. Um, and now we're looking at a situation where teams are going to have all these double headers lined up in a lot of cases because of no fault of their own, wasn't their outbreak. And there's no way the Cardinals now can play 55 games in six weeks. You can't have them do that. And so, I mean, I've talked to general managers who say, wait a second, we're going to have to play 60 games and we're going to have a team that plays 48 games, 42 games, 50 games, whatever the number is, that's not fair. I mean, I know these are extraordinary circumstances, but I really don't think there's been enough thinking within the sport about the competitive integrity issue. So when Rob used competitive integrity as his bell words, and you know that uh, I have a relationship with Rob and, and I worked with him for all 18 years I was in baseball. But now that I'm on your side, I'm trying to be fair in my criticism of people who I love and people who I don't love. And my criticism of Rob is that he has to answer to 30 owners. And I've been in that room. And here's what's actually going on if you're not the Cardinals. You don't want to be impacted in any way, financially or competitively, by something that happens to another team, whether it's a hurricane. I remember very well when the Marlins had hurricane issues in 0405. Remember, we had hurricanes every other week, and the teams we were playing were upset with us, and I was getting yelled at by Bud Selig because of the hurricanes, which I didn't control, obviously. So what I'm, what's bothering me and what I have a solution for is that when the Cardinals play all these games, because I think you're wrong. I think they're trying to get them to 57 or 58 games, including the possibility of playing a doubleheader the day after the regular season to finish off their season. But Rob's answering to 30 owners who are interested in getting games on TV so that so local TV deals can somehow be fulfilled in however microscopic a way they are going to be this year, and then making sure that he protects the postseason. So what I suggested was that you could plan the postseason bubble now and that if teams have an outbreak, that they can play their games, but they cannot play doubleheaders because that impacts the other team and they are not eligible to be in the postseason, no matter what their winning percentage is. And it is a harsh penalty, but it protects the greater good, which has always been my philosophy. Where are you on that, Jason? Uh you know, this is what I think now, David, about every question. There's either no good answer or there's no answer, period. 
Um, like, I don't think that's a great answer. Uh, I think if you tell a team, we want you to play, but you're not going to be able to make the postseason, how many players would opt out? How many players would say, no, I'm not doing that? And then, like, we, well, you have some just traveling bunch of independent league guys that you picked up who just wear that uniform. But why would the players opt out, Jason? They'd lose service time and they'd lose money. You're seeing it now. I think you're going to see it in September as teams start to realize they have nothing to play for. Players are going to opt out depending on their financial security, depending on where they fit in this on the service time ladder um, after they've achieved certain service time thresholds, like Marcus Stroman the other day. Uh, once he qualified for free agency, his thinking became different. I think this is one of the big fears inside the sport. We're going to see mass opt-outs in September. Have um, you spoken to anyone on the Pirates, Jason? Because I would say they're are they the only team who's out of it right now. Uh, I would say yes. So have you spoken to anyone? Running in that direction, but I mean, the Pirates have no chance. Okay, they're ten games under five hundred already. They can't win. That's insurmountable. Uh, I have not talk to uh, anyone in, in, on their team in a couple of weeks, I would say. Because I'm wondering if your theory is right, it's going to be tested not in September, it could be tested now. Because we talked about the possibility when teams are out of it that they won't become as diligent about following the protocols, although teams who are in it are not necessarily as diligent about following the protocols. And we're going to talk about Zach Plesak and his crazy Instagram video, which I'm talking about on Nothing Personal as well this week. But uh, what is if, if, if you, the opt outs, did you recognize that there was going to be the opt out problem with baseball versus football when football gave a date and baseball said, hey, whenever you want. I found that to be a problem when that was announced. Yeah. I mean, every sport has to do what it thinks is right for its sport. Football and baseball are different. The, the grind is different. They're, and human beings are different. So like, I do respect baseball's wish to give people the freedom to change their mind. I think they should have the ability to change their mind either way, but that it's not the way the protocols were written. Um, but it's been a danger from the beginning, um, from the moment it was clear that there, there was going to be some kind of season. I started hearing this from all sides, this concern that players would opt out in much greater numbers than what we've seen so far, but that it can still be an issue going forward. Uh, my colleague, Ken Rosenthal, just raised this in a, in a piece about the trading deadline. Um, if a team decides to trade for a veteran player on a team that's a disappointment in a couple of weeks, what's to stop that player from saying, no, I'm not going, I'm opting out. And to say, well, it's because I'm concerned about the health and safety of my family. No one can question that, but there are other things in play. Um, this is an impossible situation to, to manage. I, I really do sympathize with Rob Manfred, with the union, with all these GMs, with all these players. The, the questions are easy to raise. The answers are the hard part. So if I were still running a team, the reason I would not engage in a trade deadline deal is that I have so much economic uncertainty going forward that I'm not willing to part with any young players 
who may be good, even if we think that they're not as good as the other team is valuing them and that we're able to trade away not our best prospects, but those who we think are fringe, like bullpen arms, who the other teams view as starters. That's always a popular. By the way, that's why we traded, funny enough, Chris Paddock, is that our scouts told us he was a bullpen arm and that it's okay to trade him. Obviously, he's turned into a starter, but what he will end up is interesting. But So I'm not taking on any money for starters no matter what, whether I'm the Yankees, the Dodgers, or the, or the Marlins. I'm just not willing to do it because of the uncertain nature of the season. But then young players who had been trending toward gold pre-COVID are now off the charts platinum in post-COVID because you're seeing that when you can get young players to perform, you're just a better team and a better financially sound team. So I think it's going to be a quiet deadline. Do you think there's like the Indians, you think someone's going to want to trade for Lindor? I just don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I think it's going to be a very strange deadline. I think you could have, like, for one thing, like, you might have 25 teams that are still alive. It's hard to fall out of a race when you've only played for five weeks and 16 teams make it. You know, teams with losing records are going to make it. Uh, you have the, the, the chance for a fourth-place team to make it. It's hard to fall out of it. So you just have that. Um Another thing that's really difficult about this deadline is, I mean, you just raised it, young players. Um, if, the, if those young players are not in the big leagues, how do you even evaluate them? Um, nobody really has a good feel for what's happening at these alternate sites. Think about what's going on there. These guys show up every day, but there's no stats. There's, right, there's no consequences to these games you're playing. Um, there are very few eyeballs on you. There's no TV. There's no out, no outside scouts can, can go in and watch. Like if you want to trade for a prospect right now, how do you have any idea where that prospect is? What this year has meant for that player? I mean, you have volatility in young players anyway. I'll give you an example. Forrest Whitley, right at the Astros going into the 2019 season was viewed as one of the elite pitching prospects in the game. And then his season turned into a nightmare and people thought completely differently about him as they watched him and have that season unfold. How do we know what the heck is going on in the alternate sites right now? How do you evaluate those kinds of players when your last look at them was nearly a year ago? Um, do you remember the MLB Scouting Bureau, Jason? Back in the day, the MLB Scouting Bureau. I do. I've heard of it. <laughs> so that is when there was like a central scouting system that you could get information from about players on various teams that was available to all teams. It just came out yesterday, actually, that MLB is starting something like that again for the alternate sites that teams can get video and data from what's going on on other teams' alternate sites, and they can all share it. And their hope is that that will help deal with the exact issue you're talking about. But from where I am, from a competitive nature, I'm not participating in that. I couldn't stand, none of us with the Expos could stand the Central Scouting Bureau because we didn't trust them. We wanted our own scouts and their eyes, et cetera. But MLB wants the trading deadline to be active because, of course, it's another touch point from a marketing standpoint and from a fan engagement standpoint. So they're starting this this 
site, if you will, where you can share data with other clubs from what's going on at the alternate sites. To me, that doesn't change anything about whether or not trades will happen. What, like, what does that video even mean? That's what I would want to know. And I've already heard this from teams that, um, like, these are, like, this is like a glorified instructional league, isn't it? That's exactly what it's being used for, as it should, because the top prospects, that's what happened with the Marlins, why they had to sign all these other players and trade all the waiver claims and all the guys who were released by everyone. Because the 60-player pool, when you and I spoke about that when it first started, we talked about the fact that that's not really 60 players available to be in the the major leagues, because with no minor league system, you have all your best prospects there who you want to watch develop and not lose a full season of development with, and those guys are never going to be called up. So true. Um, Like I I really don't know how many trades are going to get made, but here's my prediction. We're going to set an all-time record for most players to be named later. Have to, have to, like you are not, you're just not going to feel comfortable trading for a young player until you can see him again, whether that's in some kind of development league in the fall or whether it's even in spring training, Uh, there'll be a little time in spring training before you have to name the players that has to happen, but it takes all the fun out of the deadline. Like, I don't think Francisco Lindor is getting traded, but we just traded Francisco Lindor. For five players to be named later. Look, how are you going to sell that in Cleveland? It can't be done. We, we did so many trades for players to be named later or cash. And the cash was always a dollar. And so we would, and we, because it would be an optics issue. Yeah. It's amazing at the end of trades, how much PR there is in terms of, hey, can you just throw in a guy with a pulse who is Dontrell Willis was a throw-in in the first trade we made with the Marlins, which just goes to show you how insane that is. That was the Alfonseca Clement deal back in 2002 before I started in Florida. And we just said, listen, we need another guy. We're trading a starter and we're trading our closer who is very well known throughout Florida. We're new to Florida. And is there any chance you can just throw in a guy? And it was Dontrell Willis. And they said, listen, he's a lefty. So that's perfect. You can just take him. And then that's what he became, which just shows you it's so hard to scout and to get it right all the time. It just doesn't happen. Uh, We've got 100 years of baseball history that tells us that's true, but that's never been more true than right now because what are these players in that alternate camp? What are those young players who aren't in the alternate camp? You can't even trade them. (laughs) Like the way the deadline works, it can't operate that way this year we don't live in that planet right now yeah i think it'll be quiet so i was the the other thing about the alternate camp that has not worked out the way i think baseball thought is that it would be like the taxi squad is a new concept this season so you have your traveling team of they it's now 28 and it's going to be 28 players the rest of the season it started at 30 it was supposed to go to 26 but then they had a new agreement on the fly making it 28 and making the taxi squad five But the reality is the injuries this season have been such an issue. And and it's another thing in a conversation you and I talked about, and I want to talk to the listeners a little bit about this. We were kicking and screaming during the break in baseball that started March 13th and ended whenever camp started. And we were talking about what are players doing? And we're seeing jokes of Twitter and social media, Instagram of Jack Flaherty pitching into a mattress. And there are fans who are finding this funny and interesting and how smart it is that he's doing that as an executive. I'm saying, Oh my God, this is, this is our ace. 
this can't work. I don't want to pitch this guy when the Cardinals are ready to start playing, but teams are saying it's a short season. We got to do it. And look what's happened. The most injuries. Have you done this stat yet? It's got to be, I talked about it on the show. I think it's the most injuries for the first two weeks of a season for pitchers ever or something. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't have the stat handy, but that is accurate. I mean, we didn't, we didn't study ever. We studied the previous 10 years and there was no period anywhere in there where the, we had this level of pitchers going down in the first two weeks of the season that, that just didn't exist. And, and I've talked to players about this, I've talked to front offices about this. Um, we knew that three weeks wasn't enough. Uh, teams tried to anticipate it. I mean, most teams were telling, especially their pitchers, uh, you like this is even in late May. We're going to play. So when you get to spring training, there's not going to be enough time to build you up the way we normally would. You've got to find some way to start building up now and, and getting bullpens in. And pitchers were told this, but there was no control over those players. Uh, so that was an issue. Everybody had to do it differently. Um, like I really, I literally heard tales of pitchers taking a bucket of baseballs to an empty park and playing long toss with themselves, right? They'd throw every ball in the bucket and go pick them all up and do it again. That's the only way they could throw. They had nobody to throw it. They didn't have a catcher. Um, their wives weren't willing to do it. Uh, Would you be willing to do it? <laughs> right? And then they came to spring to summer camp and they had three weeks to get ready. One bullpen and you're pitching in a squad game. Um, there were, there was one time on the mound in a game that counted a camp game. It, it's just not how we do things. And we've learned there is a reason that spring training works the way it works. And this is the way not to do it. I think it will have a long impact on the game. What's going on this season. And the reason I believe it is that uh, as a, again, as an executive, you can't risk injuries of players for players who are going to be free agents if I have a guy with one year left, like let's say a Trevor Bauer, I'm going to pitch him and I'm going to pitch him till his arm falls off and I'm fine with that. But when I've got my, or a Descalfani with the Reds, although he's not pitching a lot of innings because they're giving up, he gave up nine runs last night or a couple nights ago, but if, any of my young guys, there's no way I'm not going to do the normal buildup because making the playoffs, and this is coming from a guy who made the playoffs once in his whole career in 03 and won the World Series. I'm not willing to go balls to the wall on a young pitcher for a chance at the playoffs in a season like this because it's going to ruin my next season and the season after when I'm going to have to put that young player on the DL and have him accrue service time not pitching. And as a small revenue team, that's game over. So I don't understand how these teams are operating, especially they could have dreamt in the beginning the injuries weren't going to happen and deluded themselves. But now how do they not realize the facts? Well, I mean, what teams have to process all of this. Um, we do live in an age now with biometric data that's supposed to give some indication about injury risk, right? But like, if, we, if it was so reliable, why do we see this level of injuries so far? So. Um, it's, it's 56, a, Jason. Huge challenge for all these teams. Um, but there are certain teams. The Dodgers know right now they're they're playing in whatever this postseason is. 
Um, there's no incentive for them to push anybody. But there are other teams have a lot at stake, still feel this need, even in a nine-week season, to, 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 to make the playoffs, to sell that to their fan base. We're processing what they're seeing in a totally different way. And like we, it's great that you're raising this because we're watching this like it's normal. It's anything but on every level. So the, the, the lack of normalcy is, is another interesting thing I wanted to talk about because what fans have been saying through the pandemic, when are we going to get back to normal? When can my life get back to normal? And I think people are beginning to now settle into the reality that there's a chance that normalcy the way it used to be is not going to be the new normal. And that is an overused phrase in, in the corporate world. Let's create a new normal and let's move this company forward. But the, the reality is that in baseball, I think this is effectuating changes that are going to last. And I want to let's talk about changes that are happening right now in baseball that we think can last. And let's start with the most interesting one that you and I love, the extra innings man on second base. You know, for my days on the competition committee, people thought that we were talking about literally changing the dimensions between first and second base that, that by putting a man on second base extra innings, that the entire game was ruined by doing that. How do you think the experiment has gone uh, this season? And do you think it should and will last? Uh, here's what I find. I love it. And people are shocked that I love it, that I'm that guy. But I mean, it, it like, there's so many reasons to do it in a year like th this one where you can't play 17 innings because you don't have anybody to even call up. So I, there's a, the, the health reasons were the reason to do it and to try it this year. But the people who don't like it, I don't think have paid enough attention. They came in thinking it's not baseball. Hey, the World Cup has decided on penalty kicks, right? This is way more like what goes on in our sport then that is to what goes on in their sport, but that is an accepted part of their sport. I mean, I like a couple of things about this. One is, like, I'm, a, I'm just a big fan of strategy, of thinking, of thinking along with the manager. And like, what we thought this was going to be is everybody just bunt them over, get them in. There's been almost none of that. There have been so few bunts in these games because there's so many different ways to play it. So I love just thinking along with the manager. I talked to Morgan Ensberg, who's a double-A manager for the Rays, has managed with this rule for two years. And he told me, coming in, he said, it's half-court baseball. and It's awesome. I agree. There's like all the different thinking is fun if you pay attention. The other thing is, like, I'm a fun of weirdness. We have stuff happening that has never happened in the history of baseball. We had one the other night in Philadelphia. Watching this game, it goes to extra innings. Phillies, Orioles, the Orioles send up Austin Hayes to lead off extra innings. He hits an inside-the-park home run to lead off extra innings, and it's a two-run homer, right? Uh, so the, that's never been done. But I, I started going back thinking, how, how rare is it to have just a leadoff inside the park homer in extra innings? There hadn't been one in almost 100 years. So what are the odds of starting any game that way? Like, 
I'm into it, man. I love it. We've had walk-off grand slams over a five-man infield in extra innings. Like every one of these games produces something quirky. I'm a fan of the quirkiness of the game. So I, I think people are going to find they're going to like it. The only question I think is not whether it sticks around in the regular season, but whether it sticks around in the 10th inning, or whether you're going to give it an inning or two to play out the game normally. But I personally hope it does stick around. So we're talking to Jason Stark, the host of his own pod, Starkville, which you can download and subscribe to. And what you just heard him talk about actually appeared in, it may have been today's column or yesterday's column. Jason also writes for The Athletic. If you are looking to subscribe and get smarter and read a lot of amazing articles and 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 just writers from all over the country. Jason, of course, is there. It's The Athletic. You just wrote about this in your column. Was I just read it this morning after my run. So I think it was today's column because I try to read what you do every day. So, you know, I, I can't get past you. Are you in Philadelphia currently? Can I give that away? Is that too much information to the audience? No, no. That, that's fine. I live outside Philadelphia. That okay, so you're, you're watching a team who signed Bryce Harper to $330 million contract. They traded for a former player of ours, JT Realmuto, who is a future MVP, best catcher in the game. They signed Jake Arrieta, who's now a bottom of the rotation guy. They brought Joe Girardi in. How, how would you evaluate, because you don't talk a lot about the Phillies, but I know that you have a relationship in your heart and mind, but it's not been easy to watch, especially their bullpen. And uh, their, ER, their bullpen ERA, I was reading, is like over 10, which, you know, we're now... 15, what, what are we, 20 games into a season? They, they, they're, they're about a quarter of the way through their season. They, so, remember, they lost some Marlins games there. Remember that? I, yeah, <laughs> they lost two out of three of the Marlins to open the season and then, and then like three years ago. Season. Yeah. So what is your view of what's going on in Philly? Are people losing? Because I've had some issues with Philly fans over my years going there with the Marlins. Some of them are not the nicest to, to us when we're there, but I love Philadelphia and I love the teams. Are they on Joe Girardi yet? Uh, I mean, <laughs> you're familiar with Philadelphia, right? You're not happy with anybody right now. No. But, 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 I mean, but the way they were with Gabe Kapler, I would argue, is different than how they, they were so – they booed him on opening day of his first day managing. They did. Uh, it's, look, Joe has a body of work. Um, he, you know, he has 10 – years of excellence with the Yankees. He had a year in Miami working for you guys where he was manager of the year. Uh, he's an incredibly accomplished manager who one of his greatest, at, greatest qualities is always thought of as an exceptional handler of bullpens. And now he's got a, a bullpen that if they continued at this rate would be the worst bullpen in the history of the sport. And so, like, people are latching out at everybody right now. But honestly, if you, if, if you look at this rationally, you would say this is not about the manager. It's not about the pitching coach, Brian Price, who's one of the best in the business. This is about roster construction. Uh, you could see this coming a mile away. And, I mean, the Phillies have areas of great talent, right? But there's not enough depth of talent. and when, when you, I, you know, I had a GM say this to me once. It's so true. When your bullpen stinks, your team stinks. And I said this on the radio the other day. The Phillies are in danger of finishing last. It's very plausible. 
they could finish last with one of the highest payrolls in the game with a $330 million free agent, with a $100 million free agent starter in Zach Wheeler, um, with GT who's about to become a nine-figure free agent. Um, this, they're in the danger zone already, and they played 14 games. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. So, by the way, after 14 games of a regular season, this would not be the cause of that much conversation because right. there are 14 game stretches where your bullpen gets rocked and that you have a 10 ERA. I, do you know what the record is for the worst bullpen ERA? It's got to be in the sixes. It can't be worse than that over a full season. Do you think? Uh, well, I mean, it depends which period you're looking at. Like, if you go back to the, to the 1930. I want to say 1932 Phillies, I had, an, had a bullpen ERA in the nines, but it's different because bullpens really weren't used then, right? Like the guys in your bullpen were just your worst pitchers. They weren't good enough to start. So in the, in the modern bullpen era, which is about 50 years old, it's in the sixes. Okay, so that's what I would figure. It's impossible. If you can bet now, I mean, the Phillies will not end up with a bullpen ERA over 10. I mean, it's just, no. it, it, it can't happen. It's like everyone's saying that Charlie Blackman can hit 500. He is not going to hit 500 over 60 games, I promise you. And, I, and Christian no, Yellow, he, he can't, right? I mean, it's, no. I, it's, it's statistically so improbable that it would require a full column by you just on that if he can get through this season doing that. But just like Christian Yelich is not going to hit 100. It's just that is improbable over 60 games for him to do it. So we talked about extra innings. I love it. I think that I love the strategy, but what I love more is that what what we like to talk about, the pace of action. There's stuff going on. When there's a man on second, no outs, there's stuff going on. Yeah, exactly. The second that runner trots out to second base, managers are already, the wheels wheels are spinning. And if you watch baseball the way we watch it, our wheels are turning, right? We we want to can't wait to see what happens next. And the combination of that instant action and that instant strategy and the instant ability to second guess or first guess, I, like those are my favorite things about baseball. 
So I, I hope it continues. I really and do. by the way, it's working because the games are shorter. Most of them are ending in the 10th inning. We've had a couple of 11s, a couple of 13s, but mostly 10s. What about the, all the talk about the three batter minimum? I was always a fan of that because I don't like mid-inning pitching changes because I get flashbacks to Tony Larusa and playing against him over my career where he'd be walking out to the mound and changing pitchers every batter and driving me insane. But uh, I have not noticed that the three batter minimum has impacted either negatively or positively the game, either the flow or the outcome. Am I missing something, or is there a bigger impact of the three-batter minimum than I realize? Well, it, it shows up. You know, it, it, like I definitely watched some games where you knew the manager wanted to get that guy out of there, but he couldn't. Um, but I think in general you're right, and, you know, there's a lot of grumbling about this from managers this spring. I wrote quite a – quite an amazing piece about it. Just listening to him vent about the ways it was going to affect them. And yet like when you, again, if you just think this through rationally, this idea that this was going to eliminate strategy was crazy. It just changes it. Um, You have to really give a whole different thought process to who you're about to bring in the game and when like the, the one thing that I'm saddened by is it really has put some of those situational left-handers, colorful characters, funky deliveries, fun guys. It's put them out of business. Randy Choate, Jason. How about him? Oh, that's a loss, okay? Um, Jerry Blevins, one of my favorite people, sitting home, you know, trying to break into the media. That's uh, a shame. But it's just the way the game was actually evolving anyway. Do the research. The number of one-batter appearances – even by left-handed relievers against left-handed hitters, had declined dramatically, over 30% just over the last few years. And so we were heading in this direction anyway, and you're exactly right. It's incredible how little it's impacted the game or the experience of watching a game. So I think that one stays next season. Uh, Let's talk about the universal DH. So I've always been against the universal DH. And I fought very hard to get rid of it because it's a money issue for me. Having an extra player earning extra money, I can pay the 25th guy or now the 26th guy the minimum. But if you're forcing me as a National League team to have a DH, then DH is their average salary is six to eight to nine million dollars if you're going to be competitive. So I was against it for that reason. I like the National League game and the double switches and and sort of the quote-unquote strategy of it. But again, and I'm happy to admit this to you, as I'm watching the games this year, I don't miss the pitchers hitting the way I thought I would. Where are you on universal DH and whether you think it'll stay? Uh, I I think it's one of those things where once you start down that road, you can't make a U-turn. So I'm going to guess we'll never see a pitcher hit again unless something crazy happens. And a couple of things. I mean, what you just cited about DHs, that's changed too. I wrote about this a few weeks ago. How many teams in baseball had a guy who started 130 games DH last year? That answer is none. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, you know, most teams now, very few exceptions, the Nelson Cruises of the world, are just using that as a, uh, as a basically a high-impact rest day for that star player they want to get off their feet but not take out of the lineup. And like the Rays, I think they had 10 different players last season who had at least 10 
games they started at DH. That's where this is heading. And so, like, the, the original intent of the DH, like, that is quickly fading. So that's an interesting part of it, too. Um, I agree. Like, as I watch the game, I don't miss the strategy part of it as much as I thought I would. I don't miss the pitcher hitting as much as I thought I would. But if you ask me, do you miss Bartolo hitting that home run? The fun of that. I do miss that. If you ask me, do you miss Madison Bumgarner hitting two home runs on opening day? Yeah, I miss that. So, I mean, there are these parts of baseball lore that came with pitchers hitting. I do miss, but you don't – you're not as conscious as you watch games of what you're not seeing. Isn't that kind of what this is about? Um, we miss certain things, but we're, we don't know what would be there instead of what we are watching. Do you know what I don't miss is watching from the box as a pitcher who we have invested in being asked to bunt and watching his fingers over the bat and praying that he will not have the ball hit his fingers, which will then be squished into the bat, which will then cause him to go on the DL. I don't miss that, but I, but I apps that feeling, which happened every time a pitcher would hit. But I also know that all of the things that we have talked about, if people will actually take a step back and say on first glance, I don't like this because I don't like change. I'm a traditionalist. Baseball should be what baseball has been, is, and always will be. But now we're only 14 games into these changes or 15 games or 20 games or however many we are. And think about it. We are two of the people watching baseball with a very critical lens, more so than most people in the country. Some watch it through a gambling lens. Some watch it through entertainment lens. We're watching it through a business and entertainment lens. And we don't notice these things the way we thought we did. That ought to be very informative for Major League Baseball as they move forward and think about other changes, don't you think? Oh, God, yeah. Like the most tiresome thing for me is when you write or talk or tweet about any of this stuff, Rule changes, potential rule changes, all this stuff you and I talk about all the time, right? What do you get back? Leave baseball alone, right? You baseball hate baseball. <laughs> yeah, like, no. <laughs> you, ne- like, you never, ever hear football fans say, I'm never watching an NFL game again because it's not the game that Red Grange played. Nobody ever says that. <laughs> the other sports change their rules all their time to make the product more entertaining. The NBA has done it constantly. The NFL changes its rules to bring more offense and action into its sport every year. What is it about the rules of baseball that are so sacrosanct that it's some kind of sin to change them? It's really tiresome. Um, I I'm all about making the game that I love more entertaining, creating more action, creating a better rhythm. There are ways to do it. There's so much resistance all the time to all of this thinking. It's tiresome. We all need to get over it. You and I, I don't know how much time we've spent in our lives talking about this, David, but this is, I think for both of us, our greatest source of frustration. Me and you both used to be six feet four when we got into <laughs> baseball. <laughs> and now we've been, not. been pounded down by people. But uh, I'm not going to stop, and I don't think you should either. 
because as we've watched baseball evolve, the, the other evolution that's taken place in, in our, in my last 18 years and 18 years of your career, the analytics and thinking about analytics versus the scouting, scouting with your eyes, scouting with paper, all of the changes that you've seen with defensive switching. Do you remember when defensive switching used to be a big deal when it happened? And people were a little critical and looking a little askance at when you'd see an opening on the left side of the infield and three infielders on the right side. Well, we're now maybe five years later, eight years later, and now there's players switching by count. And then there are five players on the infield, four players in the outfield. And all of that is based on, it's not scouting anymore. It is pure numbers. And I was a late entrant into this sort of skill and I'm still not all the way there. And I want to finish with one more question about analytics for you as an old time baseball guy, as I am, when you see how the game is being played right now and how scouts are being marginalized and replaced by computer simulations, which is happening in front offices all over baseball, because it's no longer an advantage, actually, Jason, it used to be when just a few teams were doing it, they had an advantage but when everybody does the same thing, then the incremental benefit you had becomes smaller because obviously every team is doing it. Where, where is your head on that? And does that bother you when you're watching baseball? Well, it does uh, because here's my philosophy. All information is good information. You know, and you can get, you can get great, invaluable information from data. We, we know that. Um, you can get tremendous invaluable information from video proven but when did we decide that you can't get great invaluable information from human beings who watch closely who pay attention who talk to people who learn stuff i don't get that um it's cheaper to do it without hiring all those humans but the best scouts in baseball don't miss a thing right they see everything they see the look in a player's eye that that uh, the data will never tell them right they will talk to everybody in the ballpark who might allow them to learn that thing that no one else learns to marginalize humans is a horrible trend for every reason i mean i could spend an hour talking about this but literally for every reason but not in manufacturing so I'm drawing a difference where we're in manufacturing with machines that are doing things and they've replaced human beings and now they have to be human beings are being trained and they're going to different parts of the workforce. And that is normal improvement, technological improvement. My issue in baseball is that people are taking analytics and they're relying on it in a way that not just marginalizes the human involvement, it actually discounts it, saying that your eyes are wrong. Similar to what happens for pilots, let's say, where you can't, People would prefer that planes would have no windows because you're supposed to fly with just instruments, right? And you have to trust your instruments. And once you start looking and thinking that your eyes know where the horizon is, you end up getting screwed up. And in baseball, they're doing that. And it's bothering me because I know a lot of scouts and I know a lot of development people and managers. Managers have become merely people who are told to execute moves from the front office, in a way that had never happened as much as has evolved. And pretty soon the premium on managers is going to disappear because it'll just be almost robotic. Someone doing things that, you know, from an earpiece. And I think that baseball better be careful because if you can't measure the heart 
of a player and look in his eyes, you're going to misevaluate that player. And then we'll see another change, I think, Jason. Yeah. And, you know, I wrote about this, uh, the trend in managers a year ago, and I told this story. Um, uh, I was sitting in, uh, in a dugout before a game next to uh, a longtime front office guy who very smart guy, really respect. And we were talking about the game that his team had played the night before. And he was talking about his manager versus the other manager. And he said, our guy is a manager. Their guy is a middle manager, right? He's, he's just following the script that has been written for him by his front office. And like there are reasons to do this. There are reasons to pinpoint for the manager, watch this matchup, this, this pitcher fits against this section of their lineup, like all that stuff that that's great. But it's a problem if managers are only told to follow the script because the game doesn't follow it. Okay. And what happens when the game veers off the script, which happens all the time is the managers that are just following the script run into problems. Um, You know, when you look, look down and you're in the press box and a position player is coming into a tie game to pitch. Like that's a problem that that tells you the mat that the game didn't follow the script that was written for the manager that night. This stuff happens now. And you, you have to allow managers to trust their instinct, their baseball instincts and use the data that I don't think it will ever change that the best managers have the ability to do both. The Terry Francona's of the world, they do both. Why would that ever go out of style? That'd be a problem for me if it did. I think that it will, but it's it's a definite way to see. I want to wrap. Thank you so much, Jason. Obviously, I want to remind people, please download and subscribe to Starkville, available wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to The Athletic, which is a... I call it a an online site with 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 amazing writers. It's got a great analysis for all the sports. Jason is a writer on that as well. It's the athletic. It is worth the money. I want to end go, and circle back to the Hall of Fame because I'm obsessed with the Hall of Fame. I got to go when Andre Dawson got inducted, and it was uh, of my entire baseball career. It was the best weekend, including the postseason, including winning the World Series, being at the Hall of Fame, and meeting all of the Hall of Famers and going to the private dinners with Andre, and just, it was insane. So just give us one bit of your experience and what surprised you the most where you, I want to hear the moment, and I think you may have told this to me once before, but I want to hear if it's the same answer, where you sort of closed your eyes and said, oh my God, tell <laughs> me that moment during Hall of Fame weekend for you. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's so many incredible memories for a lifetime that I could talk about, but um, I mean, I, I think what you're asking me is about this, the way I was treated by the greatest living players on our planet blew me away. Um, you know, to, to stay in that Otisaga hotel in Cooperstown, this, this magical place in this magical kingdom surrounded by these players and just see them walking around the hall, right? Go to the bar. And it's just the greatest players who ever lived. Uh, from, so from the moment that Wade Boggs walked up to me the, in the Otis saga, 
on the Thursday of Hall of Fame weekend, stuck out his hand and said, welcome to the club. They treated me like I was one of them, and I'm not, okay? Wade Boggs has 3,000 more <laughs> hits than me. I'm well aware of that. Um, and yet, for four days, that's they didn't draw any line of separation between me and them. It was incredible. And so the, the peak of that was that Saturday where I gave my speech. And the way that works is everybody is going to sit on the stage, assembles in a meeting room at the Otisaga. And then we're going to take a bus, a couple buses over to the to Doubleday Field where the ceremony will take place. And so I am the first person to arrive because I am not going to be late for my Hall of Fame speech. And so I'm just sitting around talking to the, you know, the, the great people from the Hall of Fame, everybody who works there and makes that weekend possible. And it's just, just kind of a normal conversation until the room begins to fill up. And Ken Griffey walks into the room and sits down with us and we're chit-chatting. And now the greatest players who ever lived are beginning to walk in the room. And I look around, we're maybe 15, 20 minutes away from when we're supposed to leave. And it hits me, who's in the room? It's a bunch of living legends, and also, I'm there. And like this feeling came over me, this voice in my head said, look who's in this room, what am I doing here? What am I doing in this room? And I honestly, I couldn't breathe. I got up, I walked over to a corner of the room and I looked around and I took it in. And I, I, I honestly couldn't breathe. And I thought, I need to take a walk and get myself together. And so I started walking down the hall of the men's room just to have something to do. And I look up and Jeff Bagwell is walking <laughs> alongside me. I've known Jeff for a long time. He's great. And he, he says to me, how are you doing? Because he just had gone through this the year before. And I said, you know, Jeff, I'm doing okay, but as I look around that room, I can't help but ask myself, what am I doing in this room? And he said, oh, yeah, I, I feel that way too. And I said, wait, you feel that way? You realize you're a Hall of Famer, right? And he said to me, oh, yeah, I, I know I'm a Hall of Famer, but I'm not a Hall of Famer the way those guys are Hall of Famers. And I can't tell you how much that helped me, David, to know that these players think that way too. They look around and they look at Hank Aaron and they think, whoa, I'm in a room with Hank Aaron. I, you know, I was sitting at a uh, table the next day with Jim Tomei, who took such great care of me, and Tim Mead, who's, who now runs the Hall of Fame, came up to Jim Tomei, sitting right next to me, and said, hey, Jim, we'd like you to sit on the stage next to Henry Aaron. And I looked at the look on his face and thought, okay, he knows how I feel, you know? Uh, there's a there's just a difference between these guys that we've kind of known being around the game and the legends of the game. And the fact that those people brought me into their club and thought of me as one of their club, I honestly will never forget that as long as I live. The whole thing was magical. I was there for a week. Every moment was magical but nothing was more magical than that. You can well imagine, right? Well, you may not say it, but I will. Uh, thank you, Jason Stark. You are a legend. You are a Hall of Famer. And I appreciate your time here on Nothing Personal. And until next time, because there's always more to say. Thanks, Jason.
Thank you, David. Enjoyed it, man. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.